0: Since 1971, Beauty o Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family owned and operated mail order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It is the biggest week in American birding and if you are listening to this podcast on the day that it is released, which is May 12th, 2022, then I am am in Ohio and I have a favor to ask of you. I am heading to the McGee Marsh Boardwalk this afternoon, again, May 12th, 2022. I'll be wearing an ABA hat, I'll be carrying a microphone. I want your thoughts about the biggest week and about spring birding in general. I'm looking for podcast content, and you can help me. So today, and today only, then again, the 12th, the afternoon. I don't know exactly what time, uh, as I will be leading a trip that morning. But I'll be there, barring some sort of weather or illness-related mishap. I can't. I can't see the future. But if you're listening to this on the 12th and you are at the biggest week in American birding, come by the boardwalk. That afternoon, this afternoon, I guess, and uh, let's 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 make some let's make some podcast magic. That aside, I, I finally went on a post COVID bird walk solo. Of course, this past week at a local spring hotspot, I was pleased to see that migration wasn't completely over, uh, though the singing blackpoll warbler suggested that we're we're closer to the end than to the beginning, at least here in the southeast. I spent though a a lot of time playing around with the Merlin sound identification the sound the sound identification part of the merlin app though um, it was just something i admit i hadn't really been using a whole lot and i was i was mostly pretty impressed you know it gets a it gets a little bit of a short shrift uh, with some birders but yeah you know, it correctly picked up a lot of the commonly occurring and vocalizing birds in the park where I was birding, lots of cardinals, eastern towhees, black-throated blue warblers, wood thrush, et cetera. It even found me a yellow-throated vireo that my ears did not immediately recognize. Uh, like, I, I paused and just recorded at a spot where a lot of birds were singing just to kind of see what was there and how how good the AI is. And um, I saw a yellow-throated vireo pop up on my list, and I was like, well, how about that? So I you know stopped and actually listen for it. And in the midst of all this bird song was a yellow-throated vireo doing kind of an abbreviated version of the song, which was which was cool. Uh, it also called an American Red Star a Cape May Warbler, which was incorrect. Uh, but generally speaking, it was very successful. Not as good as my ears, because I can pick up more distant vocals than my phone's microphone can. But maybe if I had an external mic attached, it might be more successful at that. Something to play around with, I guess. Anyway, here's my thought. This is what occurred to me while I was what was doing this. I think I might try this on my breeding bird survey routes. Not as the primary means of identifying birds by any means, that is still me, but sort of as a, I don't know, like a safety net, I think, to catch things that I might miss or to kind of correct myself if I get something wrong. If it works, I could see this being a really useful tool for novice birders tackling a BBS for the first time or experienced birders whose senses are maybe waning. You know, we'll see. Uh, I'll play around with it we'll I'll report back as we get closer to that BBS time of year on the show this week I' am excited to welcome Brian Sullivan of Cornell Lab of Ornithology one of the OG birders and currently the man who manages the largest collection of bird knowledge in the universe birds of the world that's all after this week's Red birds This is your rare bird focus for the first week of May 2022. Let's talk first records. We had a couple. The friendly listserv driven rivalry between Arizona and New Mexico continues this week. Last week, we talked about an Arizona first white tipped dove. This week, it is a New Mexico first tropical perula in Eddy County. There's always the question with extra limital tropical perulas uh, exactly how much northern perula can you put in a tropical perula and still have it be a tropical perula? Sort of the The golden-winged, blue-winged warbler uh, dynamic. Thankfully, this one looks pretty good, with no sign of an eye ring or breastband to temper the excitement of what is a really great first record. And up to Massachusetts, where a willow ptarmigan in Worcester County is a surprising first. But only until you look at the underappreciated pattern of vagrancy in ptarmigans in the Deep South. That is, of course, a relative term. With regard to ptarmigans, uh, there are previous records of willow ptarmigan in Vermont, in New York, at least six from Maine, as well as a handful of records for eastern Ontario and Quebec. Ptarmigans move around. Who knew? Notably, Minnesota's second record of rock ptarmigan was seen in April, so you know maybe we were in the middle of a ptarmigan eruption. And also, this is peak gargony season, With records of the old world teal found this week in Montana and Colorado and late last month in Wisconsin, birders might be surprised to realize that late April, early May is peak period for gargany in North America with a somewhat random scattering of records all across the continent in the period representing either, I don't know, overshooting migrants or even birds that overwintered in the new world unknown to birders. That is all this week for the full accounting. As usual, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group on, well, obviously, Facebook. Maybe more than anyone in North America in the last 20 years, Brian Sullivan has been deeply involved in things that birders do. He was one of the original developers of eBird, which hardly needs an introduction. To listeners and is now project lead of Cornell's Birds of the World, which in the last couple of years has absolutely become an essential collection of bird knowledge, which is all the more amazing considering the scope of the project. He's here to talk about all that, Brian Sullivan. Um, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Thanks for having me, Nate. It's exciting to be here.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you were at eBird uh, as that project was growing in leaps and bounds. How long did it take before you recognized that something like Birds of the World was possible? Or was that always something that you sort of had in the back of your mind as the result of all this work?
1: Well, when we started working on eBird, uh, that was, you know, in the early 2000s. And -hmm. right around that time, the Cornell Lab had a project that they were also kicking off and just launching on the internet called Birds of North America Online. Mm -hmm. And that took a comprehensive set of life history monographs and digitized those and made them available online. So as BNA as we call it was maturing alongside eBird there there was discussion at the lab about how we might expand that model and one of the ideas was to first expand that model to the neotropics so mm-hmm. we built and launched a website called uh, Neotropical Birds. And I think that was launched around 2008. And the idea was sort of similar, that it was mm-hmm. this compendium of life history information about every bird um, in the Neotropics. In um, parallel to that, um, Lynx Editions had this huge series of books um, called The Handbook of Birds of the that they published that seventeen-volume massive set, <laughs> massive that, bookshelf-breaking um, tomes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at them right now. They um, they also moved that set of information online in a in a project that they called the Handbook of Birds of the World Alive, mm-hmm. and so discussions started you know, sometime around 2015 in sort of <clears throat> thinking about how how I, might we pull these things together into a single resource, you know? And it took a couple of years. Um, the actual idea, the original idea and discussions on this are, are, were more than a decade beforehand that, you know, could we do a, a BNA type thing for the world? And it just mm-hmm. seemed impossible, you know? Yeah, but then, sure. But then when you started to see some of this information popping up in different areas around the web, the idea was, well, how do we consolidate this into a single resource and make it available? And that's kind of the the uh, the concept of birds of the world. So we took all three of those things and rolled them into one project. And now we have uh, what we call birds of the world today.
0: Yeah, it is sort of interesting that Lynx's handbook of birds of the world kind of came out at a time when digitization of all that information became increasingly easy. Like you could see a world in which you didn't necessarily need those 17 books in your shelf. You could easily access all that stuff on on the web. So I had, I wonder how they felt about that. You know, all this work that they had put in publishing these things, not necessarily becoming irrelevant, but, you know, you could see that people might prefer an easier way that didn't take up so much extra space
1: yeah i mean i think the the publications started i want to say the original ones were in the early 1990s the handbook of birds of the world so it took them a while to publish those 17 volumes and of course the way people access information changed over the course of that 15 year period yeah and um they pretty quickly realized that those print volumes needed to live online and be updated
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's the other big question because taxonomy changes so fast these days you put out a book and suddenly it's it's obsolete to some exactly
1: extent. yeah yeah so so the exciting concept was to take what we already had in print digitize that and mm-hmm. use it as a foundation now to move forward with a much more dynamic approach to publication and. um You know, that's a big job when you're dealing with some 10,800 species (laughs) accounts, Um, but that's what we have now uh, as our sort of goal and mission for
0: birds of the world. Yeah. So, you know, the Lab of O has obviously gone off in a lot of really interesting directions. Uh, Much of it by using eBird data collected by you and me and all sorts of birders out there. Um, Merlin, Macaulay Library, all about birds. It's sort of apparent on the surface how these things kind of fit together. Um, How do you see birds of the world's place in that um, ecosystem, for lack of a better word?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and it is now really an ecosystem of services that the lab is developing for Mm -hmm. birders, researchers, conservation practitioners. You know, our goal now at the lab is to really think about and understand the audiences that are using yeah. our information and try to build the best resources we can to serve those groups. So Birds of the World, um, in addition to all about birds and Merlin at the lab, all three of those uh, services, if you will, contain information about species. You mm-hmm. know, And Birds of the World is the most in-depth, um, yeah. sort of treatment of those things. And Merlin is basically a, a an identification abstract. And All mm-hmm. About Birds is what you can call sort of basic natural history information. Yeah,
0: sort of like an online field guide, I guess, is the closest thing to sort it.
1: Sort of, yeah. So yeah. so our challenge now is to figure out how we build the best uh, streamlined teams at the lab to create mm-hmm. the content and... All of the things that we need to um, basically service those projects across the lab and our audiences and then figure out how to extract those pieces into the projects where um, you know people are looking for ID stuff in Merlin or they're looking for a real authoritative treatment through Birds of the world so I think it remains to be seen exactly how these pieces fit together, but yeah. we do have um, a vision. For this ecosystem and how you know they they sort of build off each other and take people in a journey from maybe being a beginning birder to yeah. an expert birder or um, someone interested in, in research in birds, you know, all the way through to uh, a PhD ornithologist. So we're we're really thinking carefully now about how these pieces um, fit together. And I think birds of the world and the information that it contains is going to be seen in a lot of places on the website where you see it today
0: yeah yeah it definitely does feel like there is a through line like a journey like you said uh that a that a potential birder could take from you know a novice birder learning identification with merlin to diving deeper or climbing the ladder or however you want to whichever direction you want to the metaphor wants to go um to to something like birds of the world where you can get pretty much all the information you could Want well, not necessarily. There's always more information you can get birds, but all, a lot of information that you could want, a lot of fascinating stuff that's relevant to uh, any person who's interested in birds, be they a hobby birder or a, as you say, a PhD ornithologist. It feels like a natural progression, um, and people can kind of take that however they want. Switch gears just slightly here. You, you know, you've written a lot about birds over the years. You've undoubtedly written your share of species accounts. Um, you know what goes into that. How do you write species accounts for 10,800 plus bird species? That's an enormous job.
1: It is an enormous job. Yeah, and we're we're lucky in that we were able to pull together these three resources to have something to start with for Mm -hmm. every bird in the world. So we have a basic building block, if you will, for a species account for every species already. So it's not like you're writing them from scratch unless there are taxonomic shifts or yeah. new species described, things like that. that that's, that's fairly rare. Mm-hmm. But the challenge now though, is to bring those species accounts up to the level of information that we'd like to have in birds of the mm-hmm, world, which mm-hmm. is this deep authoritative level. Um, and also make them uniform and structure. And, you know, because it was, stuff pulled in from different projects the there's not as much uniformity there as we'd like right so the work the work right now is you know around updating all of those accounts into a more modern uh format and design and the information in them is really really um challenging to write and challenging to sort of underpin with media and things like that so it's a lot of work that goes into updating one of these species accounts. And we have uh, various ideas, outside the box type ideas for how we're gonna do that. Um, but right now we're really operating under a, a fairly strict model where authors will take an account. These are mostly volunteer authors. Mm-hmm. So they'll sign up for an account, they'll take the account and update it, and then internal um science editors will edit that account and publish it online. But that model, as you might imagine, is not really going to scale to ten thousand eight hundred species. So and we're, not, we're not looking at sort of short time frame. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we're looking now to the future of okay, how do we take that that model that we know works to um, create really solid species accounts at a very high quality, how do we take that and scale it? You know, and how do we really engage the broadest possible community to plug into this resource um, without losing the quality of information that we Mm -hmm. really expect in a resource like Birds of the World. So that's our challenge for the years moving forward is to figure out how to really scale the publication pipeline without losing the quality that we really want to put out there um, as the Cornell Lab of Ornithology.
0: Yeah, what are the most difficult birds to find information on is there a sp- certain group of birds a certain place where birds are found you know what what are the ones that you there are the fewest available resources that you can draw upon as you can imagine updating a species account for a bird
1: that's as complex as herring gull for example <laughs> is, is a ton of work you know whereas Um, a more range restricted bird that doesn't have any subspecies, you know, that's fairly well known would be pretty easy. Um, there's a, there's a tremendous range of information available out there depending on the species. And I think we know very,
0: very little
1: about a lot of birds.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's, that seems to be the case. Um. What is the name of the new tanager, the killbill tanager? What is the new name of that? I split my the NT tanager. NT tanager, that's the one. I was talking to um I was talking to someone who was part of the team that helped describe that and lo- last year and he was saying that it's amazing how many birds that are like well des- fairly well described in field guides and in pl- for places like South America that in actuality there's very little information about these birds either because people didn't Get the information they need, or you know they're in places where people have trouble getting to um that's that that is the case for a surprisingly large number of birds it's It's pretty wild to think about how little we know yeah, it
1: really is I mean when you look at the information that's contained in a typical birds of the world species account, it's some seventy articles that yeah. cover the yeah. broad life history of the bird. for many North American birds we can put well-researched information into all 70 of those articles. But Mm -hmm. for many birds in the world, it's just no information available. Um, And then, you know, in a lot of places, there is just simply more work to be done to gather the information that already is available.
0: Like basic natural history stuff. Yeah,
1: There's so much information out there that is published now that we haven't incorporated yet because Mm -hmm. it takes us a long time to update all these accounts, you know? So, trying to keep um, a pace with the amount of information that's being published in the scientific journals is really um, a challenge that we face. And also, making sure that we incorporate all the information that's already been published that we missed the first time around (laughs) um, is another huge challenge. So, we've definitely got our work cut out for us. And I think that in the long run, I don't see how we can do that under our current model. I think we're Mm going to have to stretch and redefine the way we think about accessing the community to um, plug into birds of the world. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. the model that we have today is a little too closed off um, to contribution to scale to the level that we need to scale it to. So that's kind of what we're looking at in the future, as I said earlier.
0: It is. It is interesting. You know, so much of this information comes out from, you know, professional academic ornithologists and a lot of it is fantastic, but it really is remarkable how much good information can come from just regular hobby birders going out and doing their regular thing on a day to day basis. Like that, it, that is sort of the magic of eBird, right? That all this stuff is collated in this giant big pile of data that you can pull the stuff, the interesting stuff you need out of it. Um, is that stuff useful for things like bird, birds of the world?
1: Oh absolutely. I mean eBird has been transformative, you know, yeah. in our ability to understand bird populations, um distribution, abundance, all of these things that we we knew a lot about before eBird, but now we know about it at such a high level of precision that we yeah. can be yeah. um very explicit about Conservation actions that are needed in certain Mm -hmm. places um, versus in other places, populations might be doing pretty well. You know, rather than sort of making broad declarative statements about what a bird species is doing in terms of its trends, we can be very precise about um, where the species is doing well and where it isn't. And incorporating all of those incredible outputs from eBird into Birds of the World is a key thing that we're doing. You know, we're really excited because every year eBird gets more and more data, you know, and we're able to generate those really cool model results for more and more birds. So the eBird Status and Trends group is ranking out these amazing visualizations of bird distributions and abundances and soon trends. So we'll be featuring all those outputs in Birds of the World, and we're excited to see that get more and more
0: uh, filled out for species around the world
1: as time goes on.
0: Taxonomy is is a big challenge, I imagine, for a for a project like this. You know, bird taxonomy is changing all the time. As we're more sophisticated in our ability to parse the genomes of of bird species, we're finding all sorts of these cool little populations that split off that we wouldn't necessarily think of as as full species. Um, there's a ton of ton of potential splits out there. Do you have some I don't know species accounts ready to go for? for any potential splits that as soon as they happen, you can just be like, bam, here we go. Here's uh, Audubon's warbler.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I wouldn't say that we have species accounts waiting to go, but (laughs) we do work very closely with the taxonomy team at Mm -hmm. the lab, who is very plugged into this global taxonomic landscape now, where really the major ornithological uh, checklists are, are working together now to try to formulate yeah. a single global bird taxonomy so we're very plugged into that whole process and and in turn we get information at birds of the world well ahead of say when when ebird and clements do their annual taxonomy mm-hmm. update when they flip that switch all of a sudden everything changes in birds of the world too because we yeah. are linked to that database and that system. So behind the scenes, we have a team of editors and associate editors who work on those changes. So Mm -hmm. if there was a Audubon's Myrtle um, split, you know, and we have these two, two very common, widespread North American birds with tons of information known, Mm -hmm. we would have people working behind the scenes to create those accounts so that when eBird and Clements flip that taxonomy switch, we would have accounts ready to go on day one. Um, It hasn't always worked that way in the past and it, and it doesn't always work as neatly as we'd like, but we're, we're really striving to get to the point where when those taxonomy changes are made, we're ready in birds of the world with at least a basic first pass in an account. Um, So yeah, it's kind of neat the way it's all plugged in together to the, the Cornell labs database, because we use one underlying taxonomy that, Basically underpins everything we do for good mm-hmm. or you know for better or worse. When right. the taxonomy changes, you got to be ready for it. Yeah. So we we do a lot of prep ahead of time for that.
0: Yeah, not as not as neat as we'd like. Uh, sounds a lot like bird taxonomy in general, to be completely honest. Yep. <laughs> what does it take to develop of a, a true global taxonomy? Like who are the who are the major players? Obviously, we're familiar with IOC, Clements, all these groups that have kind of gone their own way for some. For a long time, maybe not as long as we think, but you know, how do you, how do you reconcile some of the differences in those in those different taxonomies in a way that makes everybody feel confident that what you're doing is the right thing? Yeah,
1: that's a really good question, and probably a better question for Marshall Island. Yeah, or, fair enough. Like <laughs> I mean, we will get him on too. <laughs> you are part of that process at the lab, but briefly, I can talk about. It's really important. When it comes to bird conservation and exchange Mm -hmm. of information, data, sharing, all this stuff, when we're trying to gather all this information on birds to be talking about the same thing, you know, and I think people are starting to realize that one taxonomy would facilitate that information sharing uh, much better than we have today where, you know, if some data set comes out and it's not in the taxonomy that you know, you have to crosswalk that and there may be gaps or you know, it's a real mess to try to exchange information. <laughs> <I> so <bad. laughs> the goal is to, you know, come to a single global taxonomy and that process between the checklists, you know, they're from what I understand, they're tackling this on a family by family basis. And they're really not that far apart, right? Yeah. When you look at it, um when you look at sort of where the actual mismatches are and they are literally going through case by case and reviewing as a group, a cohesive group, now a global group um, cool. called the WGAC, which is the working group on avian checklist. I think, I think that's what it stands for, but they're really focused now on resolving those conflicts and agreeing that, you know, we're going to treat, for example, uh, the green wing teal as separate taxa, right. you know, from the old world and the new world. And maybe one group doesn't necessarily think that's a good idea, but they're agreeing to go ahead with it just to yeah. um unify essentially. So they're they're working very quickly now on trying to resolve all the conflicts they can so that the the uh announcement about this single checklist can be made I think at the IOU meeting this summer. Oh, wow. uh, which is a virtual meeting, and I think there's going to be more information about that process at a roundtable at that IOU yeah. meeting. I'll
0: have to so keep that in mind. It's exciting.
1: Episode. Yeah, it's a, it's a real it's a really important huge advancement to have these groups for sure talking and collaborating and working toward a single endpoint.
0: Is there something on Birds of the World that you have learned? Through your work there about a bird, about an individual bird or a family or bird biology or whatever that you have found particularly fascinating or gives you any particularly new insight?
1: You know, that's a that's an excellent question. I mean, I think the thing that I found when I started working on Birds of the World is that I thought I knew something about birds until I started looking at the information <laughs> in Birds of the World, and then I realized I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> We have this really fun uh, feature that most people don't even use or look at on the homepage. It's called Surprise Me. And you can type in, yeah, basically, you know, <laughs> underneath where you can type in the species name, you can click this button that says Surprise Me, and it'll just randomly show you birds yeah. um, from our taxonomy. And what I like to do in the morning is just click the Surprise Me button until I've landed on a bird that I've seen before, which... Uh, which I can tell because we're linked up with eBird. So if right. you've seen it, you get a little icon in Birds of the World that shows you that you've seen it. And I can tell you that some mornings it takes me an awful lot of clicking yeah. before I, I get to I've something I've too. seen before. And and it's just what I do is I click on it, check out the bird, look look at where it lives. And it's just like this tour of yeah this avian diversity that I never even really knew existed, even though I've been doing this stuff for 30 years yeah. or however long. It's, it's, amazing. it's amazing. Um, what's out there to learn still.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the great things about birding just generally is that you're constantly made aware of what you don't know. And that, I don't know, it, it seems to really appeal to people who, who find learning fun and, oh my God, as you say, there's, there's so much information out there. And for someone that likes to collect information, that's, uh, it's a really great tool for them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say the other, the other thing about birding that, is always amazing to me is that every answer to a question leads to even more questions. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean it's just you. every time we think we've got something figured out, we learn something new which completely changes things and you've got For a whole sure. set of new questions to ask yeah, and probably. understand. Yeah. It's just a never ending um puzzle.
0: Yeah. You know, what can an average birder do to move this science, this knowledge forward? You know, does it take you know more detailed eBird lists? Uh, birding underrepresented areas? Are there gaps that you know a dedicated community scientist could help to fill in on some of this stuff?
1: I would say all of the above. There, <laughs> you know, I mean, really contributing to eBird when you go birding, uh, doing solid, complete checklists of birds that are effort-based. You know, the way eBird really likes them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are incredibly meaningful contributions, even in places where we have lots of data, you know. There's a there's a danger in thinking you've got too much data because bird populations hmm. are always changing. They're yeah. not static at all, and we're trying to measure them basically in real time. You know, our our goal is to measure the heartbeat of the planet through birds, and in order to do that, we need tons and tons of bird data coming in in real time. And um, eBird's just scratching the surface at that, so I think that. You know, getting more and more people plugged into eBird, getting more people interested in birds through apps like Merlin, um, you know, starting them on that journey to appreciating birds and, you know, making important differences in the lives of birds in any number of ways is really critical. In terms of contributing directly to Birds of the World, um, because Birds of the World sort of feeds off academic information, so published information and academic resources and things like that. It's a little bit harder to contribute directly um, mm-hmm. to those to this effort. Although I will tell you, we have a, a vision um, eventually to create a natural history journal sort of within birds of the world where people can contribute more basic natural history mm-hmm. um, observations. That are supported with things like media and photos and things like that. So not necessarily e-bird checklists, but I saw a nest of this species and it's the first one that I can, you know, first one described or whatever. Yeah. Those kinds of things in the future, I think we want to pair with the resource that we have now for birds of the world so we can let um, more direct contributions come in of those kinds of life history events and birds.
0: Brian Sullivan is the project leader of Birds of the World. Well worth your time if you're interested in any aspect of birds. ABA members do get a discount, uh, which is nice. Uh, It is birdsoftheworld.org. Thank you so much, Brian. It It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Nate. It was great to be here. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get a lot of benefits like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. I'll say your name on the podcast if you join and say that the podcast was the reason you did so. You can get more information at aba.org. Special shout outs to those people I was just talking about. Richard Connors of North Haven, Connecticut. David Garcia of Jackson, New Jersey. Stephen Greenwood of New Brunswick, New Jersey. Bob Hasenstab of Somerville, South Carolina. Gabrielle Hasenstab of Arlington, Virginia. Kate Schrum and family of Grove City, Ohio. And Daniel Tatamir of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much for doing that and welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry who's excited to get to the boardwalk up there in Ohio and kind of work your way through the crowd, stopping obviously every 10 feet to talk to a friend you haven't seen in three years, a process known locally as the McGee March. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Meese, who are certainly jealous that they are not attending the Big Bird Party in Ohio, but no doubt will be enjoying the migrating American white pelicans, as they call them, the biggest beaks in American birding. You can find us online at aviated.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. Love me some birding in the warbler capital of Ohio, Toledo. It's a good thing it's May because I'm told it's like being nowhere in fall. Questions, comments can come to podcasts at aviated.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, please. Till next week.